0: I want to talk to you this morning for just a few minutes about the church of the future. In fact, it's going to be the theme of the day both this morning and then in our meeting this evening when I get to share with you some specifics what I believe that God is doing. And as I do so, I certainly want to welcome those of you who are here today and also want to welcome those of you who are online. It gets, it's, it's difficult sometimes for us who are sitting in this room to recognize that we have an, another entire congregation that watches every week online. And some of them are from the area, some of them from the state. There's a number of different states that are represented every Sunday and even some other countries. And so for those of you that are watching online today, I want to welcome you and give a shout out to you, the congregation that, that has joined us. And I pray that you have had as much joy in worship wherever you are, as we have had today. Oftentimes, Pastor Jeff is, is interacting with that congregation online as, as the message comes and they Uh, pop questions in. And and so he interacts there with that. But I just wanted you to know that uh, I'm so glad that you're here. And for those of you that are watching online and you're able to be here, you are missing out on fellowship and friendship. And I would encourage you to come as you are able to do so. Uh, How many of you remember a movie that came out probably in the mid-80s called Back to the Future? Any of you old enough to remember that or have seen it uh, on review? I I see a lot of hands. Uh, It was a a hilarious movie that Michael J. Fox and uh, Chris Lloyd were in as, as Doc Brown and Marty McFly. And they had a car that every one of us that were alive back then dreamed that we could drive. That somehow at the right moment with the right fuel could shoot you back in time. And of course, he goes back into the 50s and gets to interact with his parents when they were young and some decisions that were made there ended up changing the future that when he got back, he had a more preferred future than before he left. And then that one went so well, they decided to make another one, a sequel about him moving to the future. And so from 1985, jumped all the way to 2015, where he had to try to save his children's future by bringing some correction to them and I I look at those movies and and think about I don't know about you but how many of you have ever said to yourself if I had it to do over again I would and then answered something differently than what you actually did any of you ever said that four of you the rest of you have lived way better (laughs) lives than I have or we have said to ourselves, if I knew then, now that seems to have touched a nerve. What I know now, I would have made a different decision than knowing that the decisions we made then have affected the future. I would like it, if you have your Bibles today, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, uh, because I would like to share with you briefly over these next few moments about The future of the church, the church at large and also the future of Grace Assembly. And as you are turning to that, I have had the responsibility uh, when I was serving in our network office to to meet with churches and boards. And and we have some of our officers here today that have to do this regularly that are not in healthy places. In fact, many times uh, before a church closes, we have these meetings with them. And I can tell you that it seemed as if universally... Within those meetings, the conversation would be, as we look back at what decisions that were made or were not made that have contributed to the lack of life that the church is experiencing today, generally, it came down to one generation decided to make decisions that would benefit only them. And as a result of that, a one-generation church ages itself right out of life. And so when we look today at the topic of the future of the church, I believe that there are going to be uh, some scriptural things that we need to implement to make sure that when we move forward, we do so with health. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, he says this, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, there's a lot of theological discussion about This particular statement that Jesus made as to what exactly is the rock that he is referring to here. Is it it Peter that he's talking to? Because Peter's name is Petros, which is rock. Or was he talking to the disciples as a group? And kind of Peter was the leader of that particular group at that time. and, And so he was talking to the whole band. Or was Jesus referring to a statement that Peter had made just previous to this when Peter said, You are the Christ. The Son of the Living God. And so was, was Jesus referring to that, saying, I am the rock upon which the church will be built. And I believe that the answer to that is yes. It's yes that there is a, a portion of all of these things that add into that because we know that the church is built upon the foundation that Jesus had laid. We know that the church is made up of all of us who have had a confession of faith in Jesus Christ and we enter into the family of God. We know that the church's foundation is built upon the writings of the apostles and so we look to that authority. But what I don't want you to miss is this crucial part where it says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is building his church. Father, I pray that over these next few moments that you would give me clarity of thought, that you would wipe away every obstacle to every heart both here and online, to keep them from hearing what the Spirit has to say to them as an individual and to us as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. When Cindy and I were engaged back in college, we had the opportunity to take an engaged couples course. And part of that responsibility of that was that we were asked to write out a one-year, three-year, five-year, and 15-year plan for what our life would look like. Now. I am a planner that fit right into the details of the way that I wanted my life to look. And so I can't tell you how disappointed I was when life blew up our plans. Has that happened to any of you before? I was thinking, Lord, I had this notarized so that you would follow the plan with me. In fact, today we've discovered in having conversations with college students and young adults that Most of them today, if you ask them, what are you going to be doing in five years? What are you going to be doing in three years? The answer that you're going to get is a very educated, I have no idea. Because our world changes that rapidly. And the context of culture changes that rapidly. Some of our students are in school for jobs that don't even exist yet but the education that they're receiving is going to prepare them for that. I want you to know it is good to have dreams and it's good to have goals and we want to move forward in such a way that we're not just floating around, driven by life and the day-to-day wind of life, but we need, I believe, the plans that we make with life to learn to hold them loosely so that the Lord can direct and redirect as he sees fit. Remember, he said, my mercies aren't good for 15 years. He said, they're new every morning which indicates that there is a fluidity to the way that he wants to lead us and guide us. So I believe that when we look at what does the church of the future need to look like, the better question for us would be, what do I need to look like as a person moving forward so that God can use me in the church that he wants to build? What kind of a person do I want to become? Because knowing what kind of a person I want to become will then inform the decisions I make today the habits that I either need to make or the habits that I need to break, and the choices that will directly shape who I will become five years from now. I believe that that principle, if we each ask that question, will work in a corporate setting of the church as well. What, Lord, are you doing in our lives corporately that five years from now we can say that we are walking within the will of God and doing what you desire? Because the scripture indicates to us that we are together becoming the church that Jesus is building. That means that I am a work in progress. Are any of you a work in progress? That God is not done with me yet. I certainly know that I have not been perfected yet. To which my wife would shout amen if she were so inclined. But we each have these things that God is working within our lives. The challenge of the church is to know that there are issues that must be addressed. And we know that we have the ability to work together to become part of the solution. It is vital that we navigate these issues together. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And then verse 22 says this, and I would encourage you to underline it. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. I love Paul's use of words there as he talks to us both as an individual and also corporately saying, God is doing something in the building that while He's working on you individually, He's also working on us corporately and He's building us together into something that will be have His hands and fingerprints all over it. And as Jesus builds His church, he gives us a vision for what the church will one day look like, and as we read through the New Testament, we begin to find these marks of what he desires his church to look for. I'm going to share with you four today very briefly, understanding that as I bring them up, you can do your own research on them and get into them a little bit deeper as we move along, but I certainly want to highlight them for you today, and these come from John as he was writing both in his gospel, and then we'll talk a little bit about the vision that he had in Revelation. The first mark of the church of the future is that it it will be a church marked by love. A church marked by love. In the 13th chapter of John, verses 34 through 35, it says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone... Repeat with me that word, everyone... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, I recognize that starting with this one is not a surprise because everything that Jesus talks about so much through the Bible deals with this aspect of love and teaching his listeners to love God and to love their neighbors. And then he goes on to define when we say, Well, God, who are our neighbors? He basically says, Everyone. Everyone is your neighbor. Everyone you see around you is defined as your neighbor. And then it almost would have been better if he had stopped there, but he didn't. He goes on to include then that we need to love our enemies. Why can't you make this easy on us? And just say, can we just love people that love us? Because we're really good at that. But he said, no, the mark of the church of the future as well as the mark of the church of today, is that we would love our enemies. Now, we recognize instantly that we can't do that on our own. I simply am not capable of that without the Holy Spirit living within me and activating something within me that is not in my nature. But when he indwells us, the activation of the Holy Spirit allows the work of God who lives within you to begin to leach out of you those nature, the nature of God which has been placed within you when you came to know him. And through that, you can love your enemies. And it becomes a distinctive mark of the church that Jesus is building. Interesting enough, Francis Schaeffer, many of you are quite familiar with his writings, Christian author cultural apologist, he said something about this passage that is profound, and I, and I want to read it to you because it's had such an impact on my thinking. He observed that when Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another, that Jesus was giving the world, those outside the boundaries of Christendom, the right to judge the individual and the church. He is giving the world a criteria to evaluate whether or not we are truly followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, by allowing the world to say, according to the scripture, that if we don't see love in your life different than the love that we have within our lives, then we don't have to pay attention to a single word you say. Because there will be nothing different about your love. And ours. That is both profound and sobering. But Jesus emphasizes the command that the church of the future must be characterized by a love that is born of Jesus Christ living within us. It is the desire of His church and the vision of His church that the future must have a church that loves, that is given a love that is divinely motivated. In fact, Jesus commands this so often that it is easy for us who are walking with him to recognize that we need his presence and we need his help. That is why we worship the way we do. That is why we don't just come and sing songs, but there's an engagement with our spirit, with the spirit of the Lord, because he activates and worship that which is living within us. And I do not want the spirit of God living in me to be dormant because I won't worship. And so as we worship, that is activated. That gives us the ability to love with a divine motivation. The second mark of the church of the future is it will be a church that is marked by unity. John 17, we see the high priestly prayer that Jesus is praying over his disciples while he is speaking to his father. And in verse 11, he says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they would be one as we are one. And then in verses 20 through 21, he goes on to say, and my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now this is one of those really cool times in the Bible where Jesus is praying a prayer that is about us sitting here this morning because we are the result of that message continuing on and we are the result of being uh, given a, a witness and a testimony that we can follow. But he said the church of the future is gonna be marked by a unity. Now for those of you that were here with us in December, I did an entire series Uh, called Backstage at Christmas where we were looking at the uniqueness of Jesus in his full divinity. He is eternal and he became poured into flesh, humbled himself to become flesh, so that he could live among us demonstrating the nature of the Father. And in that series, I talked about the aspect where Jesus is praying and he's saying, Lord, Father, I can't wait for our unity to be back the way it was before creation. Before we created the world, before we created humanity, I want that unity back. And in this prayer, Jesus is saying, I want the unity of believers to be the same as the unity that you and I have had for eternity. I want them to be one, he said, as we are one. I in you, we in them. The thing about unity, and particularly in the church that we have universally today is that so many times differences have been made a point of division and we need to be very cautious that we understand that we are united by something deeper that at the, it's at the core of who we are and for Christians that uniting aspect is our devotion to Jesus Christ. The same Holy Spirit lives inside of each of us and can hold us together in the unity of the Spirit, even as we become distinctive as individuals and who we are and the fulfilling the purposes that God has created for each of us. I love the picture of a family here. It amazes me, absolutely amazes me, that two parents can produce children with vastly different personalities. Same DNA. Different people and wise parents begin to recognize that there are different keys to unlock each of their children's hearts and they learn those things. Why should it be a surprise to us then when the church, even though we carry with us the DNA of the indwelling Jesus Christ, is filled with people with vastly different personalities, completely different ways of looking at things? In fact, interesting enough, there are some of your families, and as I look around, I know most of you. For those of you I don't know, I'm going to get to know you. Some of your families, when there's a little stress in the household, you go to separate corners, and it gets really, really quiet because you have to deal with things in that quiet ways. There's another side to that coin. Some of your families are very verbal. In fact, words are really good for you when you feel frustrated and, and Your neighbors know that. They know when there may be just a bit of tension in the household because they ask their children to come inside and they close the doors. As a result of this, we recognize that families deal with issues in some different ways. There are disagreements and conversations that are needed. There are differences of of opinion that need to be expressed. Misunderstandings have to be dealt with. But unity and unity in the church works within the reality that we don't all think the same, nor will we all have the same uh, perspective. However, love is always present. Love is always present. Family members know that at the end of the day, your family has your back. At the end of the day, the family is going to be the ones that will be there standing there supporting you. So unity in the church as it relates to what the future of the church looks like indicates that it is a church that will begin to have to address wounds in each other's life. Hurts within individuals that we have to begin to address those things and help people come to healing. And we approach this with the love of God so that the unity of the church may be preserved though we are all vastly different. God is building something together for his glory. In fact, a church is natural born enemies brought together in the bounds of Jesus Christ. I believe I heard Mark Freeman say that once and I thought that was a powerful statement and I probably misquoted it, but that was the idea. In the middle of all of this, God is building something. So unity requires action. Sometimes action is expressed through our ability to Repent to one another. Sometimes the action is to stand in front of a brother or sister that you may have wounded, whether intentionally or not, and ask forgiveness for one another. Unity involves seeking the good of the other person for the glory of Jesus Christ, and unity must involve these actions if it is going to build the church that Jesus wants. The third mark of the church of the future is it will be a church, the church that is marked by diversity. And here we move from John's gospel to the vision that John recorded in the book of Revelation. And I love this particular passage that's found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. John writing said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count, from every nation, tribe, people, And language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know about you, but I can't read that passage without getting chills that run up and down my spine as I begin to think about what it will look like. One second after my life on earth ends. What it will be look like for us to participate in the church of the future. In unity and diversity standing there together. And John gets this glimpse of a heavenly worship service. Something that the church is going to look like on the other side of eternity. And just a glimpse of what Jesus is trying to build here as we work to complete that. And while John is having this glimpse of heaven in the middle of all of these otherworldly sights, otherworldly sounds, it is a loud worship service that's going on there. And the thing that sticks out to him in the middle of all of this that he records is the makeup of the people around the throne. It's that the innumerable crowd that is gathered there worshiping Jesus, united in their praise, represents every nation of the world. The diversity that Jesus desires for the church and that he is building is seen within this passage of Scripture. Now, I had to tell the first service this morning that they missed out on a phenomenal water baptism service that happened last Sunday in the second service. They got to hear the message. You got to hear the testimonies. We were all blessed. At least I hope they were blessed. The aspect that I loved the most about that service was this. Represented within the 11 people that were baptized, we had black, we had white, and we had brown. We had different languages. We had different accents. Interesting enough, we had different ages. They ranged in age from 8 years old to 85 years old that were baptized last Sunday. And suddenly we can begin to see just a glimpse that the church of the future has going to have to be diverse in its makeup, diverse in its look, diverse in its language, diverse in its age group, that this is health. Because Jesus said, the church that I'm building in the future will be a church that builds itself on diversity. The reason that that is so needed is that we must be a church that welcomes people no matter what their background is, No matter what their socioeconomic status is, what their ethnicity is, if we're going to be the church that Jesus is building, then we need to reflect what heaven will look like while we are here on earth. That takes work, that takes effort, that takes understanding, and it will be worth it all if we will just follow through with that. And so as we are a church that is marked by diversity, what we learn is how big God is. My God is bigger than the culture that I grew up in. My God is bigger than the culture that you grew up in. In fact, we discover the diversity of the nature of God in the cultures that surround us and in the expanding comfort level of our worship experience. How many of you have ever been on a missions trip someplace outside the United States? A lot of hands. There were a bunch of us that went to Haiti a number of years ago. And we were among people who live in homes with dirt floors and cement brick walls that were probably their whole house the size of our kitchens. And yet when we gathered together in those evenings to worship, we watched a people that seemed to have more joy of the Lord for what they had than we who seemed to have so much more have in our life. We stood back astounded as the diversity of God was displayed in the diversity of the way they worshiped. And everybody that goes on those trips always says this, why can't we bring this back? Do you know it's all around us? We just need to be a church that welcomes the diversity. We've had people that have gone and and you've ministered in Latin American countries. The The Latins are far more expressive in worship than many of us who grew up. My mom and dad spent years in Africa. My dad says he loved watching those who were, uh, that, that would speak Swahili and, and, and some of the tribes, he said, because they would come to church and they would jump up and down, straight up and down. He goes, I do that about three times and my legs are given out. And he goes, and they can do this for a long time. And he says, the expression of worship begin to broaden the view of what God is like and the experiences that we have as diversity grows in the church that God is building here, our view of God expands and becomes more complete. Our theology becomes more robust. Our worship becomes more expressive. Our body is more complete and function with different gifts so that all of us might be edified and encouraged in ways that we didn't even know we needed because we'd locked ourselves in one culture. The church of the future will be marked by diversity. And in John's vision, we also see lastly that the church... The future is marked by holiness. Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. By the way, do you remember singing all of this today? Our worship team did a marvelous job of taking the themes of the message and incorporating that into the way that we worship today. Fine linen, bright and clean was given, them, given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. We notice that this term bride is kind of just thrown in there, and if you don't have a, a scriptural understanding of that, you can probably get a little bit better of an understanding. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And so we make the connection there that the church is the bride. It goes on to say that he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This captures the imagery that John is recording in the 19th chapter. And so the bride that Jesus takes is his church and the holiness with which we approach him has been given to us as a gift of his grace, nothing that we can produce on our own. So here's what we need to know about holiness. Oftentimes, what we believe holiness looks like has been determined by who you grew up with or where you grew up. And I choose this morning not to run down a rabbit trail with this because I certainly could. But there are aspects of what holiness looks like that have been embedded into each of us, particularly those of us who have grown up in the church. It generally, to the world, looks like a list of things we don't do. We're really good at saying, well, if you're a believer, you don't do this, and you don't do that, and you don't do... And all of those things may be true, not because um, we have a boring God, but because in our pursuit of holiness, there are things about the world that we choose not to engage in. But can I tell you that there is more to this word holiness than just that interpretation? In fact there is an aspect of in the word holiness in Scripture that talks about justice, which gives us the invitation that to be the church of the future, pursuing holiness is not just things we don't do, but it's the things that the church involves itself in that will lead to a just society. Doing right. And so there is this understanding that To sit back and say that holiness is just all the things we don't do would only be a portion of what the the Scripture is indicating to us. That the church of the future involved in the pursuit of holiness is going to be a church that steps out into the world and represents Jesus Christ in all the places that he needs to be represented in. That we will be a, a people that will pursue righteousness and justice everywhere it needs to be displayed. And so that indicates to us that the church of the future is not a church that is locked into walls where we come in and that our our testimony is extremely personal. I gather together with my friends at church and then I walk out and I live in such a way that I never take what God has done outside these walls. That is not what holiness means. Holiness means that is an activity. And these attributes must be part of grace assembly as we move forward these are part of God's vision for his people that would be marked by love and unity diversity and holiness worship team if you'd please come so the questions that we have and three things that I want to quickly leave with you just to jot down how can we be people that look more and more like the church of the future first of all You need to spend extravagant time with Jesus. You need to spend extravagant time with Jesus. You see, so often what we do is we try to say to the Lord, I wanna take the structures of the world and I wanna innovate them so that I can can live in such a way that's attractive to the world and attractive to you. And and God says, I'm not an innovating God. I don't wanna give you something that you just change around. I'm a transforming God. I take what you give me and I change it completely. That's why he said that when we enter into a relationship with him, he doesn't make us a better version of ourselves. He says, I make you a brand new creature. Your spiritual DNA changes. You were dead and now you're alive. And with the transformation comes the desire for each of us to spend extravagant time with the one that we love. And Jesus says, if you want to be active in being a participant, being built together in the church of the future, first of all, it's going to start by spending extravagant time with Jesus. Second of all, be discerning about your discipleship. Everything that we engage with, every person that we engage with, the media that we listen to, the entertainment that we watch all of it has a forming effect on our lives we are influenced by those things therefore we are discipled by those things so be intentional about what molds your thought process and ask the question everywhere you go and with whatever you engage with what is discipling me what is affecting the way that i think And then Lord Jesus, would you filter those things through your heart for me so that I can dispose of those things which are not helpful and engage in those things that are permitted that you're leading me to. And then lastly, grace assembly, let love drive us. Let love drive us. It all starts here. It starts with love and it finishes with love. The way that we interact with one another, the way that we interact with those who hate us, the way that we interact with those that are apathetic must be birthed from our relationship with Jesus that allows us to live in such a way that we can't live without him. It must be birthed in love. That is especially true in the way that we interact with one another within the church. It should never be surprising when we look at one another, even though we may be different in so many ways and say, My brother and my sister, I love you in the love of Jesus Christ and not just with words, but with actions.